Welcome to the Designing Hollywood Podcast. I am your host, Robert Meyer Burnett. The Designing Hollywood Podcast is dedicated to all things movies, the movie industry, and its talented professionals. Today's episode is sponsored by Fox Studios Costumes. Today's guest is an Emmy Award-winning American screenwriter, director, producer, and podcaster, best known for creating the HBO television series Entourage. During its eight-season run on HBO, Entourage was one of the cable network's most successful series, consistently scoring positive reviews, strong ratings, and numerous Emmy nominations for its behind-the-scenes portrayal of early 21st century Hollywood. The original series was executive produced by actor Mark Wahlberg and loosely based on his life as an East Coaster trying to make it in Hollywood. The show aired for eight seasons until 2011, and in 2015, an Entourage sequel movie, was released. The New York Times said Entourage was the smartest show on television at the time. Without further ado, it is our great pleasure to welcome Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Doug Ellen to the Designing Hollywood show. Man, it's so good to have you. you know, I've got to ask you, um, back in the mid-90s, I was working with a fellow editor named Jeremy Caston. What was it like working on Fat Beach? How did you get involved with that? Yeah. I got to know. Fat Beach was one of the craziest experiences of my life. I I had just gotten out of film school and I made a short film actually that um, Marilyn Vance's son produced, Lad. Um, so we were kids making this movie. Marilyn actually helped us with the costumes for that. And um, anyway, I'll go on a, a little tangent, but Please. I want I wanted to act and not that I'm good at it or would have been good, but I wrote this script for myself to star in, write and direct. I wanted it to be uh, Albert Brooks or Woody Allen or whatever. And uh, I start making this movie with Marilyn's son, Lad, and uh, we're producing it. It's like eighteen thousand dollar budget. And all of a sudden and, and David Schwimmer was a good friend of mine who was doing it after Friends, probably season one or two. And um we get a call that John Cryer wants to do my part, um, which was the lead in this little short film. So I called uh, David Schwimmer up and I said, you know, uh, I wrote this thing for me to like become an actor. And he's like, yeah, but you don't, you're not really an actor. So let John do it. And so we got John Cryer to do it. It was John Cryer and Schwimmer in this, in this short film. So that pretty much ended my acting career. I'm not sure it would have started anyway, but this producer Cleveland O'Neill saw that film. It was called the waiter and uh, called me up and said, I have this movie. Now I'm 22 years old. Like when someone calls you up and says, they want you to direct something and, and pay you, even though I was paid like 11,000 bucks, you're like, okay, I'm in, what is it? And it was called Fat Beach. Um, at the time, it's hard to imagine, but the word P-H-A-T was not really in the lexicon and it certainly wasn't in, in my arena. So when he, I was like, Fat Bitch? Like, what is it, you know? <laughs> he said, it's Fat Beach, it's this beach comedy, whatever, whatever. Work. So we make the movie, we shoot six days, Money runs out. It's over. It's gone. About a year later, I, uh, a friend of mine named Aaron Weinberg, who was making movies, saw some dailies I had around the house. And he said, what the hell is this? I said, it's some movie we shot last year that we ran out of money. And it's, you know, on a shelf. He goes, I can sell this. So he sells this movie to um, live entertainment. And they give us another, I think the whole budget was like 150 grand. 
which um, honestly for independent filmmaking, it should be hailed as, as something special. We make this thing. We, we go back a year later, we bring everyone back together and we finish this movie. Probably the entire production schedule is less than 14 days. And they released it on 400 screens. So Jeremy Caston, which I haven't heard his name in so long, so please <laughs> send him my best. But we edited it on Lightworks, which was one of the first digital platforms. Yeah. Yep. And we sat in an editing room. It was so digitized, you could barely see this movie. <laughs> but one of the things that happened was the producer, he fired um, a DP every day. He brought... Um, <laughs> different actors in for the same roles. So if you watch that movie, which was released around the world and still plays 25 years later on Showtime and Complex Magazine did a 25-year retrospective of Fat Beach <laughs> by hand to God. Chris Rock used to make fun of it in his stand-up act. So it, 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 it caught on with something. And uh, right. as I said, I was 22 just trying to get a paycheck. But... Um, there's an actress in there who's who's white in some scenes and black in others. And, and this is what this guy would do. So she has glasses on and a wig. But there was one very small stunt. This is not an action movie by any stretch. Very small stunt. And the producer brings an Asian man to be the stunt man for Jermaine Hopkins, who's African-American. And I said, Cleveland, what? This is not going to match. And he's like, don't worry about it. Just shoot it. And they put, they put shoe polish on his face. Okay. Now in 1996, I'm not going to say it's not, uh, it wasn't all already awful, but I don't know that people uh, thought of blackface yet the way they do now. Either way, I said, are you out of your fucking mind? We can't do this. And Cleveland said, we're doing it. And we did it. Jeremy will tell you that me and him, we never discussed it again, because when we watched this movie, it was so digital, we never saw it. But now they tell me there's going to be a premiere at the Galaxy 6 of this movie, <laughs> which I swear to you, when they told me it was getting released and there was going to be a premiere, I didn't believe either of these things. So it's a power. <clears throat> the premiere was a power 106 giveaway <laughs> at, at the Galaxy 6. My wife and I, my hand to God, are two of less than a dozen white people in this entire audience. And the movie starts, which actually was getting well-received. And then this minor stunt happens, and the audience sees this Asian man with shoe polish on his face, and they explode. And I hear Jackie Chan's in blackface, this and that. Now, again, it wasn't like, People were mad about it. They thought it was funny as shit. But that was the first time I ever got to see that movie where I could even see what the filmmaking looked like. That's how, you know, our budget for editing, Jeremy would know better than me. Jeremy was probably making uh, $15 a week. I was probably making eight, you know. Um, so it was it was a pretty wild experience, though. But like I said, it still plays on Showtime, I think. I read somewhere that it's grossed like $11 million. It cost about $100,000. i have never been paid any more than the initial $11,000 or $15,000 that I was paid, but it was a pretty cool experience. Well, now, <laughs> I think I should ask you, when did you know what you wanted to do? When did you decide to become a filmmaker? And was it something that consumed you from an early age? 
So it's sad to say, and again, coming back, I don't know how much Marilyn, like you talk about on the show, but Marilyn's other son, Greg, was one of my best friends in childhood. And Greg used to make films. I didn't. I loved films. I was obsessed with TV and movies and comedy. Um, but my father was an accountant. My parents were all about, you know, old Jewish values of go be a lawyer or a doctor. And it just, it really never entered my mind to actually pursue this or how to even begin doing it. Greg was the, Greg Vance was the only person I knew who ever made a film. He made this little thing, the hand. I still remember it was like stop motion from, they were talking 1982. Um, but when I was in college at Tulane, uh, I was on my way to law school, filling out my applications, senior in college. And I just woke up one day. I said, I, I can't do this. I don't want this for my life. And uh, I bought a couple of screenwriting books. I wrote my first screenplay, like with no knowledge of anything. And I started and a friend of mine signed me up to do amateur stand up comedy in New Orleans. Um, and I did it as one does. But <laughs> as one does. Yeah, exactly. And I called my parents up and I said, I'm not going to law school. I'm moving to L.A. to be a stand up comedian. And they I mean, it's 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 such a different world today where every kid has a way to be creative from TikTok and Instagram that their parents probably by that time would know they're funny. They're not funny. They're crazy, whatever it is. My parents, this was so this information was so stunning to them. It didn't make any sense. And I remember my father saying to me, but, but you're not funny. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, anyway, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. And I moved to LA and I started doing um, amateur standup and I, I got a job uh, from a temp agency at new line cinema. I was the head of the mailroom there. And uh, wow. uh, I went to a UCLA extension class uh, about screenwriting. And I wrote my first short film, which was the one before the, the one I told you about earlier. And um I made this short film for about $8,000. I raised the money by, by doing stand-up. Everyone from New Line came. Mike DeLuca, who's now an Oscar-winning producer, yep. was the VP at the time. He wrote me a check out of his own pocket to, to finance this. Um, that's where I met David Schwimmer, and I had got Ernie Hudson from a friend played softball with him and Johnny Silverman and Helen Martin, and it was a little you know, eight minutes short. And we actually sold it to Showtime and they aired it um, on Showtime before the player. And then I used that film to get into the American Film Institute, which I went to for a year. So um, to your question, I dreamt of doing this stuff, but I never did anything to pursue it until the last three or four weeks of my college experience. And what was the name of the, the film that you directed? Called the, it was called The Pitch. Um, and I wrote it, which is interesting. You know, another guy in the mailroom with me was a guy named Tommy O'Haver. Um, we wrote it together and, uh, I directed it and Tommy went on. He's had a great career. He had a Sundance hit and, uh, directed a bunch of movies and TV. So we were two guys in the mailroom passing out the mail in 1990, I guess, 91. No, I have to ask you about the mailroom. I mean, I, I worked, I was at uh, Warner Brothers, I, I low level position in 89 and 90. And knowing the mailroom guys was a big thing because you could yeah. figure out what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> they could, if you wanted to have people send you things at the studio, you'd say, hey, look, I had some producer send me a thing to make it look like I 
was yeah. bigger than I am. What was that yeah, like for, working in the mailroom? For sure. I mean, you know, look, New Line was about to explode. They were yeah. still a small place when I was there. Um, but, you know, it, 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 and I can't even tell you if this is what people do now, but it was the place you heard Mike Ovid started there. Ari Emanuel started there. And, um, you know, we had a good time. I wasn't there that long, but we had a great time. And, and you got to meet people like Mike DeLuca and Al Goldman, who was, uh, who sadly had passed away, but he let me use his office to shoot that short film in. And, um, I had never been on a set in my life when I made that film and I directed it. And just to tell you how little experience I had and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I had some natural sense of story and comedy, but, you know, I, I got a, uh, Dave Morrison was a great guy and my cinematographer who I forget how I found him, but we got on the set and he said, uh, he set up a shot. And he said, you know, tell me what you think. And I walked up to the camera and I looked in and all I saw was black. And I was like, uh, I, I thought everyone was fucking with me. And there's a whole crew of people working for free and <laughs> David Schwimmer is standing there and this one's there. And I just walked to David. I go, are, are, are you fucking with me? Is like the lens cap on or something. And he said, you got to you got to really press your eye into this thing. It's not like looking through like, you know, like a Kodak camera. So that was my first day on a set. And, um, you know, I crazily enough, what happened is, I mean, it's really a wild story that almost doesn't sound believable, but I make this short film. I sell it to Showtime. All my actors get paid. My crew gets paid. Um, and then this producer sees it and I'm blanking on who it was. And the movie is The Parent Trap. He calls me up and says, I want you to direct this studio movie. Now, where was this movie? This movie was at New Line. So within six months of me being in the mailroom at New Line Cinema, where Mike DeLuca wrote me a check out of his own pocket to make this short film, I'm walking back in to have a meeting with Mike DeLuca about directing a $20, $30 million movie. Okay. I... I don't have a fucking clue what I'm doing. I don't even really understand what a director does. And the short film I made was much more of a, a writer's piece. It was kind of one angle and it was a bunch of, of great characters pitching a story. So I sat with Mike and, and he's like, tell me your vision for this movie. I didn't know what the fuck that even meant. I was like, uh. so he took me to lunch after and he said, I know you're going to make it in this town but you need to go to school and learn. So that's when I use that film to get into AFI. But, sure. you know, what I always tell young people is, and like Greg Vance, Marilyn's son, you know, start early and start learning about this craft and learning about, you know, all of the, the technical stuff about filmmaking that would have, that would have helped me then and probably still would help me today, you know? Well, that's an important you know, point a lot of the people you're the first uh, director and producer we've spoke that I've spoken to on the show. And a lot of the technical people, the production designers, the costume designers, the directors of photography really stress how important a a rigorous understanding of the fundamentals are. Yeah. And, you know, obviously you have this is a great, a great Hollywood story that you just told. But, you know, a lot of people do believe that, well, you know, I've been doing TikTok videos. I'm ready to direct a feature. Yeah. Would yeah. that not be the way to go? <laughs> you know what? 
No, it's not. But at the same time, and Marilyn knows Rob Weiss too, I think you guys may have had on, but you know, we were both guys that went out and did it when we didn't know what we were doing. And at least we were smart enough to get people to work with us who did know what they were doing. Right. So they were able to help us with our talent. So I do believe there's a thing to just going out and getting on a set any way you can, any set you can, of course, is valuable. But when I talk to, you know, I'm about to shoot something uh, in two weeks, actually. And my cinematographer who worked on Entourage and is my friend from AFI, I've always said if I could go back and do it, because AFI was a, a real trade school and they had a directing program, a screenwriting program, production design, co uh, costumes, editing, and I've always, and cinematography. And I've always said if I could go back in time, even though the director, like Hollywood, gets treated like the king at AFI, I would have gone back as a cinematographer or an editor. Because when you can learn those skills, you can bring your raw talent out so much more than, you know, when you really have to rely on their talents. Um, and that doesn't mean that anyone could become a good cinematographer because that's a natural talent in itself that when you learn, you can hone it just like a costume designer. But I think the technical aspects of filmmaking are so important. The more that you can learn them, the better you will be able to take your, your raw talents and, and hone them into something good. Yeah. I look, I I'm a complete advocate of that as well. Now, while you didn't originally set out to go do this, were there films that influenced you? I mean, obviously growing up in the late seventies, eighties, we had home video, you know, the yeah. explosion, suddenly you could pick your movies and yeah. go to the video store, which was impossible before. Yeah. Were you a film fanatic? Did you watch uh, a lot of movies? Yeah. I was a film fanatic, psychotic, you know, to the point where my parents, like, how many times can you watch this movie? <laughs> you know, like I said, Woody Allen, Albert Brooks, Scorsese. I mean, I never, ever, I really believed I could do things like Woody Allen and Albert Brooks and not that they're not equally as brilliant as, as Scorsese. Sure. I didn't think I could do Scorsese stuff, but I was obsessed with it, loved it, Um and television too, comedies and sitcoms. I would just watch the same shit over and over. And I was very obsessive with dialogue. I mean, I remember, you know, the first time, one of my favorite movies of all time is The In-Laws and uh, the original, not the, yeah, the, yeah. the remake. And I remember like I was so obsessed with this movie and I was in a grocery store where they had the book of The In-Laws where they you know, Andrew Bergman, like, took his screenplay and made it, like, sort of a novel. And I bought that and read it. And still to this day, it's now, it's now 2022. I, that movie's probably 1978 when I was 10 or 11 years old. I can recite every single line of that movie, you know. Um, so that's how I was to the point where my parents like, what's what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? So um, and, and I'm not sadly, I'm not like that anymore. I really have a very hard time watching things more than once anymore, which is weird. But yeah, I was I was uh, I was very obsessed with it and, and comedians as well. I would watch Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy and Dennis Miller and Jerry Seinfeld. And I would watch these things over and over and then. You know, another Barry Levinson was a big influence on me, too, and, and especially Diner. When mm. I saw Diner, um, which I can't remember how old I was, but I was like, I want to make 
movies like this about friends and really the group of friends that I have, which is ultimately what Entourage uh, became, even though it was, you know, Mark Wahlberg's initial idea. Mark was great enough to go. Obviously, you got to make it your own. And I really took the friendships that I grew up in, uh, including, like I said, Marilyn's son, Greg Vance, you know, um, really bringing them into everything I did, you know. Yeah, I, well, you know, I think, well, let's jump right into that. I mean, Entourage, for those people who, like I lived, obviously I've lived in L.A., that show kind of exploded across the industry like a bomb. Everybody was talking about Entourage. Everybody was talking about the depiction of the industry. Everybody knew people like Ari, you know, it was, yeah. I, I, it was unmissable television. And everything about it, the cast, um, just the depiction of all of it. It was so, I, I mean, now we talk about Zeitgeist shows, but it, it's true. It truly was one of these first unmissable shows on, you know, on cable. It really HBO and what was exploding then. And yeah. how you, you think now it was, it was just one of these seminal programs. How did it even come about? And I know you've told this story before, but let's tell it again. It came about, you know, um, Steve Levinson, who was similar to me. Um, we went to Tulane together. He didn't do anything to get into the film business until later in life and just decided he wanted to be into it. And he just had, you know, a great uh, he had a great um, eye for talent and a great, great idea guy. Um, so what happened was, you know, interestingly enough, that first screenplay I wrote at Tulane. Um, my last three weeks of college, which I wrote in honestly like a week. And Steve moved out to, I got a cat yelling at uh, Steve. <laughs> hey, shut up. <laughs> Steve, Steve, uh, moved, moved out. He wants water. Can you give me a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, otherwise he's not going to stop. <laughs> Steve, Look. I know that this is going to air on the John Campia channel. I just want to say, I love cats. I know John doesn't. Oh, I love them too. And I got two German shepherds here too. So, so anyway, um, so Steve read that first screenplay and was like, you have a great eye for dialogue, but what the hell is this about? There's no story. There's no this. And <laughs> similar to what I was saying before that you have to learn. So anyway, um, I had made a couple of movies, Fat Beach. Then I made this other independent movie, Kissing a Fool. And just like out of Entourage, Kissing a Fool, we make for $1.2 million on location in Chicago. Universal Studios buys it, releases it <laughs> on 2,200 screens like it's fucking the biggest movie of the year. <laughs> and it opens against The Wedding Singer. And even though, which I'm proud to say, our exit polls were higher than The Wedding Singer, we opened and made like $2.2 .2 million. I had 20 offers to do things before that. Everybody was saying, I'm the next this, I'm the next that. The movie opens and my, my life and my career as I know it is fucking over. And I do not exaggerate that. <laughs> oh, I, I know. <laughs> I literally cannot get a call back. And Universal never said it was an independent movie. They just released it like it's this big, giant studio movie. And I believe it looked like a nice-looking studio movie. But we didn't have a giant movie star in it. So I'm now after making two movies, selling probably 10 screenplays, buying a house, having a child, I, I, I can't get anyone to call me for anything. And I am legitimately thinking 
I maybe I have to go back to law school now. I'm 28 years old and I'm like, this is over. And a friend of mine, Dylan Sellers, uh, said, get into TV. Like you would write great TV. I'm like, how do you get into TV? Because I, I, I was never part of the, the business. I didn't have a lot of friends who were writers. I didn't know a lot. I just made my own stuff on my own thing. So, sure. so he said, write a spec script, which it's nuts to think that Curb Your Enthusiasm is still going strong. <laughs> but I wrote a spec script for Curb I, in like an hour, sent it to Steve and who's my manager and friend for 20 years. And all of a sudden, like everybody else, he remembers that I actually have might have some minor talent. So he <laughs> says, um, you know, Mark's been following his friends around with a camera. I got this loose idea for a thing. Let's go to lunch and talk about it. So we go to lunch. He tells me it's entourage. It's Mark and his friends. And I said, uh, I remember walking out of that meeting. I go, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. We're going to watch a bunch of losers follow around a movie star around Hollywood. Like, A, who wants to watch a Hollywood show? B, who wants to? And, and this is how Kissing a Fool came about, too. Steve found that. And I had read that script. And I had no job, by the way. But I was like, what is this crap? I'm not making this. He's like, think about it. You'll figure it out. And Kissing a Fool was kind of the first way that I realized I could put my idea of friends into a story, whether it was my story or not. So he says entourage, he said the same thing, you'll figure it out. And I went home and I, I said, you know, I see a way where I could really take a lot of my experiences, use them with this movie star experiences of Mark and, and mix and match them. And uh, that's, that's where it all began, you know? How did, obviously, I mean, you think back, I mean, Vincent Chase and, and Eric and, and, you know, and of course, Johnny Drama. How, how did you begin putting this cast together? Because what a perfect cast. Yeah, I mean, it was a grind. And Lloyd, Rex Lee, my God. I mean, honestly, everybody from Constance Zimmer and Emmanuel Shrieky. And I mean, we had such great uh, talent, but it took us. Um, it probably took us six months to cast the show. Kevin Connolly wasn't even acting anymore. He was done with the business. Um, Adrian was actually a client of Lev. And we were looking for Mark Wahlberg, which is really, there's not a lot of them out there. There's not a right. lot of guys, guys that can actually act. And so we had a really hard time finding that. And Steve, who's, who's you know, got some genius to him. He kind of kept Adrian in his back pocket. And um he used to be sitting around the office and he had a freaking beard out to here. And you just, you wouldn't notice him unless maybe, you know, unless you took the time to look in his eyes and go, Jesus, this is a good looking guy. You know, who is this? So six months in, Steve's like, I, I have the guy. And uh, I'm like, he's been sitting at that computer terminal over there for the last six months. Wow. Um, so, so that happened with Adrian, Jeremy Piven. I wrote in before I ever, met Ari or heard of Ari I wrote Jeremy Piven playing my agent who was a guy named Jeff Jacobs at CAA and um it was not till we pitched the show which was me and Steve and Jeff and Ari Mark Mark wasn't there when we went to HBO and I met Ari and I was like okay <laughs> this guy's a character that has to be in this show. Um, <laughs> so that's how that came about. But I wrote Jeremy in. Kevin Dillon just auditioned 
from one line, I was like, how did we get so lucky to get this guy? So, um, so that's kind of how it went down. Well, the, uh, you know, you look at the, uh, the IMDB listing of everyone who was in this show. I mean, everyone was in this show and I, I, the, the casting, you did some genius things. And I, I guess now's the time to bring it up. One of the, one of my favorite things in the show was Bob Saget. Yeah. And rest in peace. Yeah. But my God, did you deconstruct Bob Saget? And, and I, I got to ask you about like, whose idea was that? So what's interesting about it is, is I, I wasn't even deconstructing him because I knew Bob and I just did a, yesterday i did they're doing an andrew dice clay documentary and i haven't actually confirmed this but i believe it was the same time that i saw them which is the rodney dangerfield special on hbo i'm pretty sure they were on the same one Mm. but i saw both of them and they were two guys that were kind of two versions of how i see myself which is one the neurotic jewish guy and one even though dice is jewish that kind of wants to be the tough italian guy and I saw those two guys on that special when I was 11th, 12th grade. And, and again, even if Bob's was a separate special on the Rodney Dangerfield thing. And I, I thought those are guys I want to be. But Bob Saget's comedy was very dirty. It yes. was not, you know, it was not Full House. And <laughs> I've never seen a single episode of Full House in my life. Like, I've, ne- I've just never watched it. So I think Rob Weiss knew Bob and said, Bob wants to do the show. And I said, okay, I want to do this, this. And I wrote a script, or Rob and I wrote it, whatever happened. And we had this script where Bob was destitute and impoverished and, and down on his luck and living next to the guys. And Bob called me up, said, can we go to lunch? I said, sure. And I go to lunch and Bob says, I'll do anything except for play broke. I'm one of the few people in the history of the business that it was on two top 10 television shows at the same moment. So I don't want to do that, but I'll do anything else. And I said, you'll do cocaine and hang out with hookers. He said, great. I just don't want to be broke. And um, then we wrote the script and Bob, you know, I mean, you know, I've talked about this a lot, obviously over the last month, but um, he was one of the great pleasures of, of my life to have a friend and a, a, a guy who was so giving and so, awesome to be around and came back for the movie. And I've gone to his, his charity event for his, his, you know, his sister passed away from this scurloderma. I always have a hard time pronouncing it, but, um, and was just one of like the great people in this town. Um, and he didn't take himself so seriously, even though Bob was an Oscar winning director from a student film. Bob was a really smart guy who could have been a doctor and, People sometimes dismiss him as, oh, he was this full house guy. And I think Bob had this desire to do other things and really stretch himself. And he was really willing on Entourage to have fun with it. And, um, you know, it's just it's a horrible, horrible, horrible loss. And uh, but he was he was amazing to us and amazing to be around. Um, but, you know, Entourage, we were really lucky talking about some of those people that were my idols who I got to get on the show from Scorsese to James Cameron to Larry David, you know, um, so, you know, to Bono. I mean, it was really, uh, it was a wild experience. So, well, not only that, I mean, the, the prophetic nature, I think one of my favorite 
storylines and now it's become even funnier is the idea of the Aquaman movie. Yeah. That, that, that Vincent Chase, you know, became Aquaman. And to see to see sort of life imitating art, what does it does it strike you as amusing that comic book films and comic book adaptations have now become the lifeblood of Hollywood? You know, it's so strange because you know, some people go, oh, you know, all the 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 loudmouth, you know, judgmental morons like to talk about entourage didn't age well, which I find so <laughs> stupid because entourage, as you know, from being in this town, it was a really accurate representation of what the town was and friendships, yes. the friendships, which was the key to the show or mine. But what didn't age well in entourage, surprisingly enough, was the idea a couple of them which I'll get back to the superhero thing, but TV was not something a movie star would do in <laughs> 2003. And the amount of jokes that we made, which I think young people watching Entourage now would be like, what are they talking about? Where the idea of offering Vincent Chase a television show was mind-bogglingly insulting. While now everybody does a television show, from Meryl Streep to, you know, whoever. You know, I, I know... You know, Leo's in whatever. It's a it's a movie, but it's a Netflix TV show. Uh, you know, um, up in the I don't even know what the movie's called. The one that just got nominated. <laughs> up in the air, yeah. Up in the air. So I mean, it's it's changed in that way. And as regard to the superhero movies, they were dead when <laughs> we were doing this. And I wanted the stupidest idea ever for uh for a comic movie. So the idea of Aquaman was literally me making fun of the idea that one day anyone other than, by the way, because I said it at the time and, you know, it's a good story with, with getting James Cameron, but I said Aquaman sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard unless James Cameron does it. So our post-production supervisor worked on Dark Angel and other things with James Cameron so I just wrote it in the script and she reads it and is like, what are you doing? I'm like, just ask him, just ask him. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And we got him. And um, I still believe not to, again, they made a billion dollars. I wish I made the fucking movie, but <laughs> James Cameron would have made a good Aquaman. He would have made a movie that I want to see as opposed to the one that was made, you know? Well, it's funny, Avatar 2 set on the oceans of Pandora. So maybe you'll get to see <laughs> yeah. 20 years later. He's finally, he's finally arrived. I mean, he's on the set of entourage in his trailer, writing avatar. And, you know, this is a guy who like, he's when you talk about what I was saying earlier, technical stuff, I have sat with, with James Cameron at a meal and thought to myself, I'm way too stupid to be in this business. I mean, the guy is on a level, but he walks out of his trailer, which is one of like the seminal moments of my life. And it's like 11 o'clock in Pasadena. We're shooting this uh, Sundance episode. It's supposed to be Sundance, but it's in Pasadena. <laughs> and he comes out of his trailer and he, I swear to God, he goes, Doug, how do you, how do you write like this? These, it's so naturalistic. These people are like so real. And he said, I didn't know Avatar was at this point. He says, I'm writing these, these blue people and this and that. And I don't know if he was being funny, but he made me feel really good about the difference in what I attempt to do 
which by the way, he does also very well when he wants and Terminator and, and true lies when he wants to write real, real like more grounded stuff. But, um, you know, he said, I, I just, you know, how do, how do you write that stuff? And that was the stuff that was always important to me. Whereas, you know, I think the story is always the key to a movie, but when you see movies that don't work, sometimes the visuals are amazing and people like that. That's not my thing. I was always a story guy and a, and a dialogue guy. And I think that's why someone like Cameron is, you know, one of my favorites because he he's got that rare ability like Scorsese to be able to do both, you know? Um, so. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I, loved about entourage was you know the depiction of ari gold and and the whole idea of the talent agency realm i mean i had a little i worked a little bit at at both caa and and william morris and you captured something it's almost like you're looking into an alien planet and i think people that are outside of the entertainment industry (laughs) the whole idea of agents and what they do i i think for the first time you sort of peeled back that area of the business yeah. Was that something, did you have people like crawling out of the woodwork to tell you agency stories? And Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, was so great about it. Cause you know, I, I despise them on the, for the most part. And I believed that the way I was trying to write them was really the way I felt about the business. The, the show was really about my life. This, you know, New Yorker from a middle-class background who comes out to all these fucking assholes and, 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 and looks at them like we got to stick together because these people will fuck us any way they can. But the agents loved it. They were obsessed with it. And Ari was obsessed with it, which is great. Um, And was very proud to walk around and go, I'm Ari, I'm the real Ari. And I think it actually really actually helped his business as well. But um, I really tried to portray what I saw them as. And obviously the Ari character was more of a family guy and more of a, a, a lover of his clients than, than in reality would be, God forbid you fall on hard times. Because I've, I've seen what my agents do to me when I fall on hard times. So, you know, but that's what I wanted to do. But they loved it. And I, the amount of agents that would tell me, you know, this is how they explain to their friends back home what they do. It was, it was pretty, it was gratifying, you know? And that's why I say to hear now, oh, you know, you did this or that. Where, where were the black agents? And I said, and at the time I said, where are the black agents at fucking CAA and at William Morris? Don't blame me. Don't, but don't ask me to create a fake universe. I'm just trying to reflect what I see, you know? Um, and by the way, it hasn't changed that much you know, no. 15 years later. So. Well, it's the question is who would want to be an agent now? <laughs> well, that's, I, you know, the question is, is will it be a business and, and, and who would have imagined the changes while I really was ahead of so much shit on that show that has happened. I could never have seen what's happened over the last 10 years. Never. You know, no, it's insanity. I mean, yeah. it, the, the sea change, it wasn't just a sea change. It's almost like the poles on the whole planet have reversed Yep, and changed everything. You know, I'm curious, though, too, once, you know, you've made a show like this and it becomes because it quickly became the talk of of Hollywood. Did you have people throwing themselves at you like, please put me in the show or how yeah. can I be depicted or 
Yeah, there, I don't know. Do, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it throwing themselves, but we, you know, the first episode, I didn't even know if Mark Wahlberg was going to show up. I legitimately was sitting on the set, going, "Lev, is he coming?" And Mark, by the way, just to be clear, Mark was the best and amazing producer. But you know, we're making this show. I've never done a TV show. He said to me, "Do whatever you want." Don't make me look stupid. So, and Mark's, Mark's, you know, I'm not scared of a lot of people. He's, a, he's a tough guy. And when he looks at you and says that, it was, you know, on my mind. So I didn't know if he was going to show up. Gina Gershon, who I've met and subsequently loved, she did not show up for the pilot when she was committed to do it. Said she didn't realize she was playing herself. And all of a sudden, you know, Adrian had to call Ali Larder from the set and go, "Would you do us?" this huge favor and come down right now. So we didn't know if we were going to get anybody. And it was really important to me to make the world feel real that they were surrounded by these people. So by season two or whenever it was, when I'm getting calls that LeBron James wants to be on the show, that Tom Brady loves the show, that James Cameron will not only be on the show, but will come back for a second episode, Peter Jackson and Larry David and, Matt Damon, it was it was amazing, but very, very unforeseen and very gratifying, you know. Now, but you're still making you're still making a show and the grind of making a show is is, is sort of a singular experience. What was it like for you as the show did gain success and, and more and more was expected of you? Did that put undue pressure on you did you ever feel creatively no. stifled or were you no nothing nothing changed for me except for see you know getting season one made was was torture hbo tortured me they treated me like i was a schmuck they made it very clear to me that i had never done this before once season one happened they gave me pretty free reign to do what i wanted um, until Chris Albrecht left and then they brought some new people in and started fucking with me. But that, that's a whole different story. But I had pretty much free reign. The pressure was from myself from day one, even though I never believed that show was going anywhere. But I still I must have written 40 drafts of that show and they don't they don't pay you per draft. They gave me a, a fee. I think it was fifty thousand dollars. 20 months later, I'm still writing draft after draft after draft, not knowing if we're ever going to get on a set. And when we shot the pilot, I still didn't believe we were ever getting picked up. I mean, we were against, uh, I'm trying to think, maybe Robert Rodriguez had a show or, or somebody awesome had a show. And they, the agents told me they're picking up one. That's it. I'm like, well, of course they're not picking up ours. So I never really imagined it would be going. And then even when it got picked up, my executive at HBO, who I'd worked with for a year and a half on this, calls me up the night before and says, you know, tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up to reviews. This is not what we do here. We do smart stuff. We do this. So don't don't get upset. This is more of our fun show. I was like, fuck. And that's, you know, you said it earlier, but I woke up which I ended up doing an episode like this, but I woke up and all I cared about for 20 years was, or whatever, 10 years that I was in this business is that the New York times, which I don't care about anymore, but I, that the New York times wrote a good review because my parents were going to read that. And all their friends were going to read that. And my dad's best friend who called me up after seeing me do stand up the first time and said, you're killing your parents 
What the fuck are you doing with your life? Blah, blah, blah. So all I wanted was that New York Times review, I thought. Got that review, as you said, smartest show on TV. They put us as the best show on TV in 2004, I think, you know, drama and comedy. And uh, that was amazing, but I never, ever stopped. I mean, whether the show stayed good, got worse, got better, I worked 24-7 on that show, and nothing mattered to me. I was like, you know, they could have told me they guarantee me 40 seasons every single episode. I grinded it out to the best of my ability, which is, you know, an obsessive, uh, crazy quality. And when it was over, I swore... I was not going to do it ever again in my life because, you know, I, I ended up divorced. There's a lot of people in this business do. I was not spending the time with my kids that I thought I was going to. And um, I had this overall deal and the next show just went into production. And then I came up with an idea and all of a sudden I had John Ridley writing it and Spike Lee directing it. And all of a sudden I was, I was in it and I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it. And both shows did not get picked up, which HBO can literally go fuck themselves over that. But at the same time, I was relieved. I, I just needed to stop. And I'm now for the first time going back to, I'm financing my own thing and I'm getting into it again right now. And I have made a commitment to myself that I am going to enjoy it. So while Entourage was this incredible experience that led to so much good stuff in my life, the, the grind of it was, was a lot on me personally. So well, there's a lot of people watching the show that don't understand sort of the business of television. And one of the things that I've always been fascinated by hearing my television writer friends tell me the, their horror stories is network notes. Yeah. And I wonder if you could sort of explain what are network notes and how were, how was it to get notes from HBO? Well, I think that the really important thing is when you're a young writer, the, the a simple thing your shrink will always tell you is not to take things personally. And when I was a young writer and really didn't understand I took things very personally. And, uh, you know, as a lot of New Yorkers, I've got my strong anger, aggression issues. And it was, it was tough. As I grew, I understood that these are not all morons who don't know a goddamn thing about anything. There's actually some very valid things that people have to say. Sometimes they don't say them in the right way, or sometimes they don't even know what their problem is with something. But I've really learned to... Uh, really accept comments coming from people, filter them in my own head and, and see what works for me, how I can adjust what's working for them. Um, and HBO people, especially the ones that developed this show, were really smart. Carolyn Strauss and Chris Albrecht were really, really smart. So their notes were very good. The problem is they have 400 shows going on and when you don't have a go show, they don't really care. You can hand in a script that you are bleeding over and it could take two months before anyone calls you. 
you know? Um, so that is a part of the process that's very difficult to deal with. And especially when you have no money coming in and, and you know, you know, you're seeing them at the Emmys and this and that. And then all of a sudden you finally get a call like, Oh, they want to talk to you now. And they, they do, they talk to you like, listen, you're in the big leagues. This is what we don't like. And if it doesn't get solved, go home, you know? So that's, that's one of the things that's really important for young writers to number one, understand, even if it's your own idea, even if you created every syllable of it, they're paying for it. So yeah. you are a work for hire, no matter what you want to believe. This is not painting and this is not guitar playing with, you know, and, and you do it. You're not James Taylor. So there really <laughs> is a lot of people that have to come together to make these things work. So um, when you're working with good executives, like I said, like Carolyn or Chris, as long as you're able to, you know, process what they're saying is probably more intelligent than you want it to be, because you never want to hear that your script's not working. You like, you always want to hear it's amazing. It's great, but you're almost never going to, you know? Well, even with entourage, you had people like Barack Obama, the president yeah. of the United States talk about how entourage was one of his favorite shows. Yeah. And you almost got him for a cameo. Didn't you? We, well, I don't know about the cameo, but we were supposed to go watch it with him at the white house, which Ari was setting up, you know, Rom was his chief of staff which I thought was just going to be the greatest experience ever. And then I said, when that got canceled, uh, there was some type of terrorist attack or something more important. <laughs> it's just wild, though, to think about the fact that there's 0% chance on the planet Earth that a liberal president, even if they watched Entourage in the quiet of their home, would say that they liked it. That's how much the world has shifted in 10 years. Like, I think, you know, a president that, you know, even conservatives kind of thought was trying to do the right thing that now liberals would torture him for even saying that. But it is true, you know, um, and it was pretty gratifying. And I actually, you know, one of my regrets was Ari, you know, Ari invited me to his house for a fundraiser for Obama, you know, two years before he became president. And he called me up. He's like, yeah, come to my house. The next president's going to be there, Barack Obama. I'm like, yeah, okay, he's going to be the next president. Good luck <laughs> with that. So it's it's just crazy how much the world shifted and, and how quickly it's happened, you know? Well, you know, looking back on the show, and, and then you obviously you got to turn it into a, a feature film, and now even that was sort of unusual. There were not a lot of TV shows. I mean, the X-Files got their feature film. Yeah. But and now we recently saw the Sopranos and, and even the world has changed in that way and that you did get a yeah. feature film. What was it like for you to come back and, and do the movie? I mean, it was we had the best time. I did not want to do it. Um, I wish somehow we we skipped three years and got to the streaming thing, because I think it would have been a wildly successful uh, movie on HBO Max. Um you know, it's just, and it's not, I, I think the movie looked great. And, you know, I have everyone that was involved in that movie are big feature film people. This did not look like a TV show, but we were hitting the, the Me Too movement right in the face. And guys talking about women, the way the guys talked about women was just, it was, it was tortured. Um, but I just still didn't want to do it. I thought there's something that I really came to love about about television and the idea of telling a story in five hours instead of 90 minutes, that it, it felt rushed 
to me and it was hard to work. That being said, I'm proud of the movie, but I really wish we would have gone season nine as opposed to a movie, you know? Well, that being said, is there a possibility now that they're rebooting everything? Will Entourage come back? Will there be an Entourage reboot? Well, it's such an interesting thing. And I've talked about it a little bit, but the, the, the way that whoever at HBO has pretended it didn't exist for a while, like you literally would type in ENT on HBO Max and Curb would show up on the thing. And I've looked, I have a podcast now with two of the guys from Entourage, Kevin Dillon and Kevin Connolly. And we yeah. look back at the show and the truth is, which Mark always said to me, and it was because of my sensibility, the show was pretty tame. You can talk about some dialogue and stuff, but there was more sexualized show, which is what the New York Times also said. There were more sexualized shows on, on CBS and Fox than, than Entourage was. Some of the dialogue, obviously, people can look at it now and go, ooh, whatever. But it was pretty accurate for the time. But I still believe there will be a reboot. But they have acted like it's the most, you know, uh, touch hot button issue in the world. That being said, I'm making a new show with Kevin Dillon and Kevin Connolly right now, um, Charlie Sheen and Martin Sheen and uh, uh, Breezy, who I do a podcast with, who's on All American. So um, we're moving forward doing stuff that I, I'm going to look at how I see Hollywood in 2022, uh, similar to how I looked at it, how I saw it in 2003. But I still believe there'll be a moment where they want to do the reboot. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, once Arliss gets rebooted, I'll, I'll figure it's maybe our time, you know. What Now, what is this show you're doing? What is the new show called? And, and uh, I, I don't have a title yet. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really... Um, totally giving up plots but basically i i ended up in this podcast space two years ago which i've i've come to from all the things i talked about stand-up comedy was not my thing because i i don't like people and i didn't like being in a crowd and writing i didn't like notes because it's so hard to deal with as we said podcasting became this thing where i get to do what i want to do and I don't have to listen to anybody and I don't have to hear the audience jeer or cheer, but I can get it out there. And, and, you know, we've done this victory of the podcast, which I think we just hit uh, 11 or 12 million downloads. It's been wildly successful. We've done like live shows at theaters now, um, which has been pretty amazing. Um, so the show is going to incorporate a lot of my life and how I've seen the last, you know, seven eight years change hollywood and change the business um but again it's going to be still a personal story about friendship and family and things that similar elements of entourage you know without some of the you know the the, the problematic things that people see you know what well, you know i need to ask you about that it's interesting watching um one of my favorite things is to watch people react to the sex in the city reboot and just like yeah. that yeah. It has not been received very well. Yeah, and, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be because it's, no. it's it's a joke. It's a it's a PC joke. And yeah, I, I'm blown away by it. Like yeah. I, I've tuned in. Like I have certain problems with other genre shows that I really used to love, like Star Trek. Uh, and I've been very vocal about my discontent with yeah. modern Star Trek, but nothing like the the women that are watching and just like that. And I wonder, you know, we're living through a golden age of entertainment you tune on we're getting things like scott frank doing uh, the queen's gambit or we're watching shows from korea like squid game that take the world by storm yeah. that, that are they're edgy 
and yep. and they're genuine but yet there's a lot of pressure in the other direction to yeah. to sort of embrace a pc culture yeah. which i think is the antithesis of what of great storytelling it, yeah. it feels I, fake and 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 it's not authentic and yeah for, for me the words you said edgy is not the word because authentic is the word and when you watch afterlife with ricky gervais who's not scared to go anywhere He's not trying to push a button and neither right. is Larry David. They're doing what they are and they're being true to themselves. Yes. Again, do I know how this thing that I'm going to do is, is going to be received? But there's not a single moment that I'm going to spend going, I wonder if they're going to criticize me. I don't write like that. I never fucking did. And, you know, it's why, you know, when Entra started and, and, and then you got to remember back in 2003, the idea of doing a show about Hollywood was one of the worst ideas that anyone could imagine. I mean, action was made, which I think people liked and nobody watched it. So it was just like, stay the fuck away from Hollywood. Who do you think you are? Now people are obsessed with Hollywood and watching stars on their Instagram and really knowing the behind the scenes about people that we were showing at a time when that wasn't available to them. So um, there's nothing that I will ever write. And if nobody watches it, I'll be happier than someone going, I fucking did what they did on Sex in the City. And again, I was a big fan of Sex in the City. Me too. You know? And when I watched that show, when it started, I was like, these guys have really come up with something, which is women talking in a way that they do, but that no one's ever put on screen. And now obviously we know all the Kristen Wiig stuff that's come after that and, and Melissa McCarthy and all that. So to watch them literally almost take a playbook of let's see, let's make every fucking nonsense go into this was really, it was actually upsetting rather than just bad. Um, so, and, and especially HBO, you want HBO to deliver stuff. And again, I'm not suggesting anyone sits down and go, how can I shock people? But people like Dave Chappelle, whether you get mad at him or not, he walks that line that moves culture and that gets people talking. And again, I'm not saying I'm going to do that, but what I am going to do is write as authentically to what I see as I can, you know? Well, I think our culture is becoming inauthentic. Yeah. And, and that everyone is afraid there we're building a, a, on a, on a foundation of sand ideas that don't jibe with, with human nature. Yeah. And I and, think though, I think though, and again, I hate it, but I think every couple of years this ha this isn't new. I mean, right. yeah, I just did Dice's documentary. Andrew Dice Clay was canceled in 1990, you know, and even comedians who were dealing with cancel culture prior to Dice were complaining about Dice, which is the real tragedy when the artists and I've said this, you know, I've fucking like Mindy Kaling with her big fucking mouth criticizing Entourage. You know, when we all worked with like a lot of the same crew and we were nominated for Emmys and Golden Globes and Writers Guild Awards every year. So when you have artists who want to start censoring other artists because it doesn't work with their taste, that's when I really have a problem. But um, I think that. Watch Afterlife. Ricky Gervais ain't kowtowing to anybody and people are loving it. So I I think. And, and again, I have no idea how many people are watching Sex in the City or not. I just know that anyone who you want to be watching it can't stand it. And I think that hopefully artists will look inside themselves, take risks, 
go shit. Am I going to get in trouble for this and go for it or not even think about it? Cause I, I don't think about that. I just go. And more importantly to me is does the story work? Are you laughing? I, I have no concerns when someone goes, Ooh, you know, so hopefully, uh, other people will go the same way. I think we saw with Chappelle where he just said, fuck you don't watch, you know, like, so. Well, you know, that, that said, um, looking back on having a show that had cultural relevance, that had people, a water cooler show, people were talking, people writing think pieces, analyzing what it was that you were showing. And, and now you've got this great podcast and, you're working on new shows now, you know, your, your career is now in its what third decade. Yeah. And, uh, you're, you're a survivor. You're still here. If one person can create one show in their career that is remembered, but yeah. your show will, will be remembered for a long time. Um, what, what is it like though, for you to look back on being involved in that whole process from the perspective of today? You know, I don't, even though on the podcast, we, we look back, but I try to look forward and, you know, what I look at is the new show I'm doing. I have 30 crew members who are on Entourage. I have friends from film school. I have six or seven actors from Entourage already just in the first one. So I look back at the relationships and friendships I have, which were always the basis for most of what I wrote um were my childhood friendships who were still my best friends so I, I look back at things like that and and as I get now 53 years old which it really is as cliche as as it is it's like it doesn't make any sense and I don't understand where it went and when you see the young people coming out you go do I still understand these people what's been really gratifying to me though when looking back is that the, the podcast and HBO Max, Entourage, I was scared that it was gone forever because they were deliberately trying to make it gone forever. The pandemic really brought it back. There was like a five-year gap where no one would talk to me about it at all. And then all of a sudden, all of my friends would tell me their, their 15 to 22-year-old kids are all watching it. So that's obviously something that's exciting. At the same time, we all know in this town, and I, I've always done it. I've moved at my own pace, but you can evaporate very quickly, no matter what you've done or right. created. Um, and it's important if you want to keep working, which times I do and times I don't. The way I'm working now, I do because I'm, I'm in control and I'm working with people that I want to be with. But you really have to keep going every single day. And you want to take your two weeks off or a month but you really have to take this as a job every day. And I think short of being Spielberg or Scorsese, if you don't, you're just going to be irrelevant and gone, you know? So we'll see what happens though. I've just, what's been great for me is I've loved doing the podcast and this new show that I'm doing, whether it becomes successful or not, I'm enjoying the process. So that's, that's really the, the key to me now. Now, speaking of the relationships you have, I would be remiss. I mean, obviously I started, I was able to start hosting these podcasts because I met Martika and, and I was like, wait, you know, you know, Marilyn Vance. <laughs> and, yeah. and I, I mean, I started waxing rhapsodic about how in the eighties I, I said to her, I think 
that Euro trash terrorists were given were given a vision because of the way they're dressed and die hard. And that was all Marilyn Vance's work. And I'm like, I still want Michael Perret's duster from Streets of Fire. And I still want Ferris yeah. Bueller's leather, that two-tone leather jacket he wore. Yeah. And, so, I, and I was with, I was with leather wearing Charlie Sheen last night, who I'm doing the show with. So, you know, he was in the leather jacket in Ferris, you know? Yeah. And I got to ask, I mean, what was it like? You, you said you spoke about Marilyn's son's a long time relationship there. And I have to ask, you know, what was it like meeting Marilyn? What was it like growing up with her kids? So, you know, like I said, when, when lad said he would produce this movie, I, I mean, I didn't know how to put this thing together. And then Marilyn got us, I don't know if it's Western or whoever costumes to let us kind of go in there and rummage through this place, you know, when we had no money Um and, you know, and, and Marilyn's ex-husband, Kenny, who's, you know, Jay and the Americans. And like that, that was kind of like my first breach with real people in the business. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, these these are relationships from 1983, you know, <laughs> um, so it's really important to find your way into those things and i was lucky that i happened to go to high school with them because they're literally the only people i i knew in the business at all so um the fact that we ended up actually working together um and the same thing with levinson from college like just those little relationships can be something that you know can can change a life so um you know, but I obviously have seen every one of Marilyn's movies and John Cryer was in the, in the short film that I did with Lad. So, you know, it's it's all kind of just come full circle in kind of a magical way. And the fact that she's doing a podcast now, it's just very cool. So, well, now I have to ask you, because I always ask everybody in these shows, the world, the world has changed. And now, like you brought up with TikTok and with whether it's Twitter and there's so many ways now where people there's a lot of great creativity happening all the time, but for people that really want to pursue a professional track to get into the business today, what uh, wise pearls might you, might you offer? Is there any, any advice you could give to aspiring filmmakers or TV makers? Create. It's so cheap. Now the short film that I did that took me a year on a flatbed in my apartment with begging editors to come over, you know, I could make for a hundred dollars today. I mean, and on my iPhone and it would look just as good. So there's no excuse not to go out and create. Um, and, you know, I have friends who are making real careers off of Instagram and TikTok, bigger than my careers. Um, and they've, you know, um, created comedy or, or dancing, whatever the hell it is. So I think, there's no excuse for it, but the biggest thing I can say is focus and don't get lost in the the club scene if that exists anymore in LA. Or, I don't or even know if it does, man. Yeah, I mean, I don't either, but I think it's really important to take this as a job. And one of the hardest things to do, even for me, even after I had sold scripts, when people be like, what do you do? I'm like, well, you know, I'm like kind of a writer, director thing, you know, it's really important to embrace what you are and and really go for it and more importantly decide do you love this so much that you don't want to do anything else because i do believe even with the new avenues it's still probably the hardest business in the world with the exception of maybe being a professional athlete it's just 
very, very few and far between and very difficult to make a steady existence in this business. So you really have to love it, you know? You know, you talked a little bit about how in, in Entourage, when you're making it, the idea of a television star and a movie star, they were different. You, you know, a movie star would never go back to TV. But the whole business has changed. And you brought up things, you know, even Instagram, no longer is there anybody, there's no shame whether you're making money off YouTube, whether you're making money off TikTok, Instagram, Twitch, whatever. There are people that are making incredible livings and they're making oh yeah millions and millions of dollars on these various venues. Yeah. And yet I I still grapple with the fact that I always wanted to make, you know, movies, which is that two hour paradigm. And people are like, yeah. movies, that's so 20th century. Yeah. Let's get into streaming shows. Do you, you, know the, you ever well, the, feel that way? The thing that I say to everybody is you adapt or you die. It's really that simple. You can really sit and, and, and just like our parents did and their parents did. They thought there was this new shit that why is this happening, you know? But I looked at it and I was actually really motivated by Taylor Swift going out and sitting during a pandemic and making her albums from her house and taking back her own catalog. And when I look at like, all the time and effort that I put into Entourage, all my actors want to go do a reboot, but I'm waiting whether HBO thinks, you know, it's appropriate for their fucking network when, you know, they let women say whatever they want on Sex and the City. So I decided the same thing. I have to, I have to adapt. I'm going to go out, start a podcast. I'm going to go out. I'm going to go make this shit with all of the talented people that I know that people are under undercounting now who Emmy nominated actors and people who are at the top of the business that people now are like, Oh, they're so, they're so last year. So I believe just like I did with Andrew Dice Clay and, and Bob Saget, even who, you know, thanked me for giving him an extra 10 year stand-up career after his appearance on Entourage. Cause it brought him to a whole other world that there's so many talented people that aren't utilized the way they deserve to be. Mm. And I think it's just, you go out and do whatever you want. And if your ultimate goal is to make that two hour movie, do whatever you have to do to get there, which there may be these steps in between, you know? So. Well, Doug, what do you have coming up with your podcast? Uh, I don't, we don't plan much, you know? So, <laughs> um, you know, and we've been lucky enough just like, entourage like who's going to do our podcast and next thing i know we have you know julius randall who's maybe the nba nvp last year and then mark cuban comes in and this one and that one so we actually have a really good time doing it me Connolly, and, and kevin Dillon. um but we've had some fabulous guests and we'll keep uh we'll keep pushing to get them but um you know again like i said we just have a good time doing it and it's three old friends talking about 30 years of of business friendship and all of that stuff so can people find you on social media yeah i am uh which i was banned for about a month and a half i got my account back um i have to be careful what i say but i'm, I'm mr doug ellen on instagram um and like i said new show starts shooting in two weeks with charlie sheen martin sheen dylan Connolly, uh jamie lynn siegler breezy from all american mark cuban um, trying to think who else is in there. Harvey Gian, I just got yesterday, who's, who's from In the Shadows and, and Reacher, um, which is, you know, again, wild story. Just saw Reacher last week. 
saw this guy and reached out to him on Instagram. And the next day I know he's at my house for a barbecue and, and he's going to do this show with us. So, you know, there's lots of ways to kind of go about things nowadays that are very different from the old days of let me call their agent and wait five weeks for them to tell me that they don't like the script, you know? (laughs) No, I mean, that's what social media has definitely made it easier to find people and reach out. A lot of people want to work. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that, that, that uh, the the old ways are definitely being swept swept aside. And I think a lot of people want to work now with people they want to work with yes. as opposed to being treated like shit or worrying about this or that. So it's 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 a good time. Just got to get out and do it, you know? Well, Doug, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to thank you for being here on the Designing Hollywood podcast. Thank you. Uh, what a rollicking good time it was to speak with you, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. I want to thank Doug Ellen for a great conversation. I love the fact that he doesn't hold anything back. And also, thank you to our sponsor, Fox Studios Costumes. With an extensive array of costumes and textiles from all eras, the Fox Onlot Warehouse provides customers an opportunity to turn their ideas into works of art. A special thanks to our producer and founder, Martika Ibarra, and of course, our co-founder, legendary costume designer, Marilyn Vance. Thank you to all of our viewers for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification button and you can find the Designing Hollywood podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also on iTunes. Follow me, Robert Meyer Burnett, on Instagram, on Twitter at BurnettRM or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. Thanks for watching. We very much appreciate it.